0: most original and creative talent in our business would you welcome mr orson wells
1: ladies and gentlemen orson wells again come to call for another visit
0: good evening this is orson wells Buck Benny, the a two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses.
2: Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I'm here with Terry Phillips. I'm here with Kathy Fuller Seely. We are going to talk about Orson Welles. This is the episode I've talked about for the last couple times. That it is, um, uh, it is the one about lobbying and how many lobbyists there are. I think he says there are three thousand lobbyists at the time in D.C. Uh, Six thousand. Wow and it uh, did no, that, that, in 1945, 1945. God knows how many million yeah did, did anyone look up and see how many we have this now Too many i did <laughs> and so so <laughs> i was i was amazed at the number i found out i was thinking okay if it's 6000 then it's going to be what 25000 now or something uh, the numbers i got were ranging from 8000 to uh, about 12000 so it Doubled at the most, so I mean, it shows that there are already so many. That how many can you have? I suppose I I don't, I don't know. But uh, interesting how that whole concept of lobbying works, and that he goes into it a little bit. It's very. It's the first I ever heard anyone ever talk about lobbying was was with him from the, from this time frame. So, uh, uh, what did you guys think of it, of this episode and and so forth? Um, let's go with Terry first. Terry, what did what was going on with you at this?
3: Well, the first thing he said was that lobbying is a crime, which it is not. Um, it, it may be criminal, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's actually part of our legal system. I thought that he was really um, powerful in talking about uh, military waste, the waste in military spending. And, you know, here we had all this need and all this potential, all these facilities, and we weren't using them. He was, he was uh, you know, comparing lobbyists to fortune tellers and using the same so- techniques as, um, as fortune tellers used. Um, he, he beat up on, uh, on um, the, the lack of support for international organizations like uh, like the UN and, and UNRWA, which he referred to, it's probably unfamiliar to listeners today, but yeah, UNRWA stood know. for the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. It was eventually replaced by the Marshall Plan. Uh, the, the most important, most interesting thing I found about this episode was his reference to his support for the now deceased, or by then deceased, um, Franklin Roosevelt. And I'd forgotten that uh, Orson Welles was not only a, a supporter of uh, FDR, but campaigned with him, wrote speeches for him. And the I had to look up this reference to Roosevelt's ability to laugh at his critics, his attackers. And I, I the closest thing I could surmise was that he was referring at that moment to Thomas Dewey, who ran unsuccessfully for president right. against FDM. But overall, his this was another example of Orson Welles laying it out uh, courageously and um, beating up on Anthony Eden, the yeah. future prime minister of Great Britain. And, and he mentioned three senators. I just want to give their names by way of background. Uh, he said Ball, Fulbright, and Hatch. Joseph Ball was... Um, A senator from Minnesota who was very pro UN. William Fulbright, of course, uh, established the uh, International Scholarship uh, Exchange Program. And Carl Hatch, I think no relation to Orrin Hatch. Carl Hatch uh, is most uh, remembered for uh, attaching his name to the Hatch Act, which prohibits, among other things, federal employees from uh, engaging in uh, partisan political activities. But these were, you know, at the time, these were names that everybody (laughs) knew. Right, that's right.
4: This hatch was from New Mexico.
3: Uh, that's that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah Carl Hatch. Because
4: was, was from here there. in Texas, we're all about Hatch um, chili peppers from New Mexico, and I wonder huh. if that's how where oh. his money comes from. It, it, it's that's possible the, he
3: was. I believe he was also um, a journalist and a businessman. So it's possible that he had
2: some or there was some family enterprise. So, uh, could uh, be. Well, Kathy, what did you think?
4: Well, 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 thank you so much, Terry, for those thoughtful ideas if we put this episode back next to the one he did last week about telling the Briar Rose story, I was fascinated. And when we were wondering what's the purpose of the Briar Rose story. And then, so I was interested in him talking about the fortune tellers. Cause he really is sort of talking about sort of magicians and fortune tellers right. and then sort of, um, um obliquely connecting that to, to lobbyists, as in their ability to, to yeah. uh, uh, convince people to invest and in, make bad investments and steal their money. And so I'm really uh, I was I'm interested in the various techniques he's using, cramming into his 15 minutes these different ways of um appealing to his audience. The way he uses dramatic skills to push for, to bring the boys home. Yeah, you know, it just really, it's like, oh, bring my boys home. You know, that's yeah. why I was he. He made me. He's such an effective speaker that he made me mad, and then he made me sad and worried for the people of starving people of Europe and how because I believe the winter of forty five was as bad as the oh, bad. winter. Oh, of,
2: bad, yeah, yeah.
4: A forty six was as bad as the winter of forty five, and lots of people were starving to death. So I'm glad if UNRWA became the Marshall Plan to do something. You know, because there were this show simply continues to amaze me for when it's really easy when you're teaching a history survey course to say world war ii is over people immediately go and build suburbs you know and emphasize that sort of happy you know i mean that happy days version of the 50s to think the war is over but these huge crises and this idea that he's still talking about about the people in washington are saying let's let's start war with the Russians right now let's go drop some bombs and send all these soldiers that we haven't brought home to uh, go to war with Russia it's enough to give me nightmares and so that's what I love about these pieces of history trying to understand how they were under I'll I'll personalize it a little
2: bit for you here uh my father I talked with him and he was ready to ship out but Because he didn't ship. They put him on the ship, I think, or he was there to go on the ship. But then the war was declared over. And so then they sent him back. And, of course, he was the very first people to get on with Korea. He was sent to Korea immediately. But when this happened, when when everybody came back, the car companies had been making other things, war-type things and not cars. So he said it was so hard to get a car. And you if you could get a car that was a couple years old or three years old, you, you know, everybody would be like, Wow, you, you got a great car. And you'd have to pay so much inflated price for it. You'd be paying more than it originally sold for because they were so competitive as to trying to get the because everybody wanted needed a vehicle to get to their jobs and so forth. And so many people didn't have cars or the cars were getting so old by that time and it took them a while to ramp up production to to get them back where everybody could have a car so uh, I thought I just thought that was interesting I hadn't really thought about that yeah
4: thank you you would you know you think of ending of stuff and then things get calm like kind of like you hope at end of elections that things would get calm and then To hear that, no, at the time, suddenly there are all
2: these huge... Well, and to hear a Mm -hmm. weekly commentary going through this time that normally we just kind of sweep over, um, because even my dad talking to him, he'll he'll sweep over it pretty fast, and, and then be like, well, in 1950, this happened, and it's like, well, wait a minute, this goes through... We're, this is one week in 1945. Now we're going to have next week in 1945. The next week in 19. I mean, we still got a lot of 1945, number of weeks, six weeks or whatever, until we start to hit the 46 episodes. So, so I, I just think it's neat going through this time with Orson as our guide. And uh, uh, I knew you guys would enjoy this. And I'm, I'm just so glad we, we do this all the time. And the fact that some of these episodes, this is one of the few that had existed all along. So there were like 10 episodes, this is one of the 10 that's been available forever, probably not in quite this good a sound. But, uh, but most of them we've shared so far have been lost to time until just recently discovered. And to, for us to be able to enjoy them 75 years later and go, wow, this is some great stuff. Yeah, it's been awesome.
3: And Orson well, Wells so probably got some or I was just gonna say Orson Wells probably got some criticism at the time that celebrities today get for speaking out on politics oh, yeah. something
2: they're not qualified to talk really, about. Yeah, but clearly he was about. qualified to talk about yeah. these things. If anybody had the gravitas to pull it off though, it is Orson Wells, the guy the guy that somehow seemed <laughs> like he was, 60 was twenty. <laughs> yeah. Until you see him in person and he looks twenty, you
4: know, and he's yeah. only thirty.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, I got to let my next group in, so I will let you guys go. Okay. Thank you for another Thank great. You so week. Much. And have a great Thanksgiving, everybody. So see you later. All right. Bye-bye.
1: Orson Welles speaking. Lobbying is against the law. In at least one state, it's a crime. And in a dozen more, lobbying is a felony. In Washington, there were 96 senators and 129 lobbyists in 1924. Today there are still 96 senators, but there are over 6,000 lobbyists. Well, today I'm going to expose one of the most secret and potentially dangerous of all the lobbyists. Most of you have never heard of him. He's the fortune-telling lobbyist. I'll get to him in just a minute.
0: In a little while, you'll begin to see new radios in the stores again. Some will have old familiar names. Some you will never have heard of before. But there's one you will see that has a double advantage. It's an entirely new home radio, yet it has a background of 15 most successful years. Or well, you might ask, how could this be? Well, the radio is the Lear, L-E-A-R. And since 1930, Lear has been making the most precise and exacting kind of radios, aircraft radios. Instruments that had to have the most advanced design and manufacture. Now, Lear is using that rare skill and turning it to making unusually fine radios that you can have for your home. And as you would suppose, Lear radios will include the newest things that there are. One is the Lear wire that remembers. This is wire recording made so simple and easy to use that just a flick of a switch captures song, speech, or even radio broadcasts for you to hear time and time again. A single spool of wire holds as much as an hour of entertainment. And anything you don't want to keep can be erased just by recording something else on top. There's never been anything like this in home radios before. It's one of the fine new advances you find in Lear radios. So before you settle on any radio for your home, be sure to see and hear the one with the nameplate Lear. L-E-A-R. Now Mr. Wells brings you his views and opinions on events as he sees them. The opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. Our fighting men are not coming back home from overseas on schedule.
1: The War Department has issued a statement seeking to shift the blame for this... To labor. Too many strikes, says the War Department. I'd like to ask the War and Navy Department some questions. One, why did we make haste to transfer the Queen Elizabeth back to the British before it had brought American boys back to their homes? Two, why is the world's greatest Navy not used for the great task of redeployment? Why is it used instead for Navy Day parades on the east and west coasts? Three, why have we failed to use merchant vessels to get the boys home? We use them time and again for troop transport during the war. Four. Why have merchant vessels, free from lend-lease trade since August 21st, been put to carrying private trade before the war job is done? Five. Why have hundreds of Liberty ships convertible in 48 hours to transport purposes, according to the Superintendent of the Water Division, Port of Manila, lain idle this past month, rusting at their anchors, collecting barnacles in far Pacific Island ports, where there have been no strikes? These questions are based on facts, gentlemen of the War Department, gentlemen of the Navy Department. The American people demand factual answers. Or would you prefer to supply policy answers to these policy questions? One, is that handful of desperate men in Washington who want to fight Soviet Russia now before Russia can produce the atom bomb going to have its way? Two, are our fighting men kept in such great numbers overseas? In numbers, way in excess of those announced is needed for occupation purposes because they have more combat ahead of them. Are American boys going to fight in Russia? Are American boys going to fight in China? Now about that lobby. Well, most people don't know that there's big money in the fortune-telling racket. You can take my word for it as a magician that like a certain gambler's group, the big shots are organized. And like the gambling gang, they call themselves the Syndicate. Ten people run the Syndicate right now. Some of the slickest workers ever known to the con games. They divided the country between them. I saw one of these big shots a little while ago. We were both guests at a dinner party. My hostess had promised me she had a wonderful man coming to the house. He's not a common fortune teller, she said. Not at all. Mr. X, she told me, is gifted with strange powers. He's lived for years in a lamasery in Tibet. Well, he came in right after that, and I didn't spoil the party by admitting that I knew Mr. X. He used another name three years ago, and he's had to get out of several different states on very short notice. For all I know, that's why he left the lamasery. Maybe the Tibetan police got wise to him. Well, if I thought he'd mind a magician being there, I flattered myself, and he was a smash hit. Believe me, he's good. He's all right. Probably makes $100,000 a year, Mr. X. Gets $25 for a private reading, but he isn't in it for the fees, not Mr. X. He gives his readings, and he waits. Eventually, the sucker comes in, the right sucker, and then he goes to work. Maybe it's a rich widow. She's lost a jewel. He tells her where to find it. She looks in the place he said to look, and my goodness, there it is. Now the widow will go for anything. She makes an investment according to his advice, and what do you know? She doubles her money. That's the old come on, of course. And now his fat, nice little old widow is ready for the kill. She goes for the oil stock of the gold mine, and she goes in a big way. And before she finds out she's been skinned, our Tibetan friend is out of town. Or maybe he doesn't even leave. Maybe the sucker told him something he can use. Maybe she mentioned a little indiscretion in their heart-to-heart talk, some trifling confidence, just enough to keep her mouth shut. You see, blackmail is a regular part of the operation. Now, it's true there are hundreds of these seers, these so-called spiritual advisors, who don't go for blackmail or selling phony stocks, who live safely and well off the straight readings. And I'll admit that in some instances, these people are sincere. What of it? I charge that all fortune tellers are dangerous. I charge that even the most honest men and women who think they're psychic and give advice on that basis are hurting the people they advise. They're meddling with precious things. Too often, private questions of the heart, family matters, serious business decisions are left entirely to their hunches or to the ingenuity of their invention. The psychic tries to take the place of the priest and the lawyer and the doctor. And unlike them, he has no responsibility to God or to science or to the law. And if you think there isn't much fortune-telling anymore, you're wrong. The racket is booming. Today, there are more fortune-tellers operating in America than ever before. A lot of them are working, as you might expect, in Hollywood. There's only one community, as a matter of fact, sporting more of them. And here, I think I'm going to surprise you, and a little unpleasantly, too. Ladies and gentlemen, there are more fortune-tellers in Washington, D.C., more of these racketeers in our capital than anywhere else in the country. Several of your congressmen and more than one U.S. senator... Consult these phony mystics at regular weekly periods. The hanky-panky experts actually come to their offices in Congress on appointed days. We have a right to expect of our representatives in Congress that they rely on their wisdom and their best judgment and on their consciences, not on the lines of their palms or the bumps on their heads. When they need advice, let them consult the people who voted for them. Well, here's the new kind of lobbyist when I told you I'd tell you about the fortune-teller. I think he's the most sinister of all because you can't know what he's really after or who, besides the sucker, pays him off. You know, it could mean that a lobbyist interested in killing a law or in getting it passed won't see your congressman about it. He'll see your congressman's fortune-teller. Well, I only wish the fortune-telling lobby was the worst news from Washington... This Thanksgiving Day, General Eisenhower, his face flushed with fever, his voice husky, stood before the House Committee on Foreign Affairs to plead that the United States keep its promise to the world by appropriating funds for UNRWA, UNRA, to keep starvation death to a minimum this winter. Republican Congressman Carl Munt of South Dakota heard Ike say, There are few places in Europe where people are not cold, hungry, apprehensive of the future. Then Munt cracked. If you aren't lucky enough to have South Dakota pheasant for Thanksgiving dinner, I hope you have a good turkey. There was laughter in the room, but none from Ike. The hearing ended without a vote. Munt waddled away to his Thanksgiving dinner, but Ike went straight to a hospital bed. He's still there. Later, this Thanksgiving day, Governor Lehman revealed that UNRWA had been forced to cancel $50 million worth of orders for medicine and clothing for lack of funds. But another $50 million of U.S. Army supplies already in Europe will be withheld from starving people. Said Lehman, this month, the month in which we celebrate Thanksgiving in America, 10,000 people in Warsaw alone will die of starvation and disease. Ladies and gentlemen... Graves are now being dug for people who will inevitably starve this winter in Europe. All the desperate men are trying hard to turn the Pearl Harbor inquiry into a virtual impeachment of a dead president. In the committee are men like Congressman Gerhardt, who damned every attempt to prepare the nation against Pearl Harbor. Mr. Gerhardt seems to think that Roosevelt and Hull started the war. I always thought the Japanese had something to do with it. But there's no question in Mr. Gerhardt's mind about the subject. He says, and I quote him, the Japanese were doing everything in their power to get an acceptable agreement and got slapped in the face on November 26th. That precipitated the war. Unquote. Senator Tunnell from Delaware put it, I think, very well on the floor of the Senate when he said, and I quote Senator Tunnell in part, the public has never fallen for such propaganda in the past, but Mr. Roosevelt's opponents hoped it might now. When their conqueror was in the tomb, their plan was to rake through the wreckage of Pearl Harbor and find there the evidence that the Pacific-friendly Japanese were trapped by Roosevelt's diplomatic cunning into fighting for their sacred liberty. Well, what evidence of these men in borrowed kimonos now turned up? First of all, they have the Navy's word that captured Japanese authorities and Japanese documents prove beyond the slightest doubt that the Japanese fleet set out for the cowardly trip to Hawaii on November 25th, even before they learned of Secretary Hull's final message. Unquote. And a very good statement, too. Well, you know, friends, I remember... I remember other attacks almost as scurrilous made by irresponsible politicians against one of the greatest of all our American presidents. And I remember sitting with Franklin Roosevelt when the news of one such attack was brought to him. I remember how Roosevelt laughed that day. It was great laughter. And you know, it almost seems to me that I can hear that laughter now. Your attention, please, for an interesting announcement.
0: Up to now, only aviators have had Lear radios. They haven't been made for homes before. But now the fine techniques and careful manufacture that have become habit with Lear are being turned to making radios for you. And when you see and hear them, you'll agree they're radios such as you haven't seen before. Some will have television. Some will include high-fidelity FM and shortwave. There will be models with automatic record changers as well as table models and portables, and some will have the Lear wire recorder I mentioned a little while ago. Of course, the best way to see what Lear has done for home radio is to hear the new sets themselves. We'll let you know as dealers get them, because we're sure that when you look at and listen to a Lear radio, you'll be convinced that here is a radio that dollar for dollar gives you the most for your money. The Lear Radio. L-E-A-R. And now, a final word from Orson Welles. Well,
1: what do you know? This week, Tony Eden came out for elimination of the veto power in the United Nations Charter. And so did three United States senators. Ball of Minnesota, Fulbright of Arkansas, Hatch of New Mexico. The uh, statement by Hatch is, I think, highly significant since... As is well known, he's Harry Truman's closest Senate friend. Some even believe it may indicate a change of sentiment in the White House. Others wonder if Hatch had Harry in mind when, after discussing the atom bomb, he quoted a Chinese proverb. The proverb goes like this. What is the use of having a thousand-league horse if you do not have a thousand-league man to ride him? Said Hatch, it is written that man may not look upon the face of God and live. It remains to be seen whether man may usurp the power of God and survive. Which reminds me of another quotation and credit the great Catholic convert G.K. Chesterton for this one. With all our wisdom, there's one thing none of us can ever know. Whether the world is old or young. Well, my time's up for now. I'm sure of that anyway. Please let me come to call again. And thanks for this time.
0: This is the American Broadcasting Company.